It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Climate Solutions Show. Coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Wenigal, and I'm joined today by my co-host Laura Perry and Michael Steindl. G'day guys, how are you doing? Today we're going to be talking to Dr Melissa Hart, who is the Graduate Director of Australian Research Centre, the Centre of Excellence for Climate Systems Science, with a focus on urban climate. She has recently also been accepted into the Global Women in STEM Leadership Initiative, Homeward Bound. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Good to have you with us. Very excited about all the work that you're doing. Great. To start with, Melissa, can you tell us firstly about the ARC Centre of Excellence and how it's structured? Definitely. So uh, we actually have two centres running at the moment as of um, the 1st of July, so it was just a few days ago. So the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate System uh, Science, which is the centre we've been running since 2011 and has one more year to go. And then we were actually funded just last year for the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes, which started on July 1st. So these are centres of uh, research excellence funded by the Australian Research Council for seven years at a time. And they're a research collaboration across Australian universities, but also across national and international partner institutions. So within our centres, uh, we have five Australian universities, so UNSW, ANU, Monash, University of Melbourne and University of Tasmania. Oh, OK. Research That's yeah, located in all the universities, we've got over 100 graduate students, which is one of my main roles to, to run our graduate program. Mm-hmm. And, and then we also work with the Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO, the UK Met Office, NASA, many other organisations. Even NASA. Yeah. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, Melissa, your main field of research currently is the urban climate and particularly the impact of land use, surface characteristics and anthropogenic activities. You've been doing this for a while, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yes. And can you tell us uh, a little bit about what that incorporates? Sure. So cities are interesting because, um, well, for a start, the majority of the world's population lives in cities. So it's now at over 50% globally, but in developed countries, it's much higher in Australia. It's close to 90% of us living in cities. And it's growing as well in developing countries. Cities are the greatest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions and and obviously you have a high density of people in a, a small amount of space. So it's only about 3% of the Earth's land surface that is cities. But uh, what I think is really fascinating is that cities are impacted by climate, so obviously impacted by uh, global climate change, but they can also impact climate. And that's what I look at, so what's called the urban heat island effect where you find changes in land use due to urbanisation, so removing vegetation, replacing it with roads and buildings and such, um, can actually impact the climate within a city. And we find that cities are warmer than their rural surrounds. 
So when you add on the fact that we're already uh, experiencing a warmer climate due to global climate change, it means that in cities people can actually be experienced sort of a, a double whammy of impacts um, due to both this localised warming due to urbanisation and the global warming due to greenhouse gas effects. Melissa, just on your comment there about um, cities being major contributors, um, when I got really active in, in climate action some 10 years back, I sort of just automatically thought um, country living good, city bad. Um, very quickly woke up that, yes, cities are big contributors, but proportionately they're not, are they? It's actually one of the most efficient ways, if we've got to have 7 billion humans, to house them and, and feed them and so on and minimise the energy use and one of the best opportunities to do that. Is that right? It is. If, if, if it's done, uh, I guess, uh, I need to use the word sensibly, I can't think of another mm-hmm. word, but, but uh, you know, if you have cities that are uh, built so that they're not overly reliant on cars, for example, mm-hmm. or, or cities where you have lots of large housing, uh, houses and that are sort of big users of energy. So if, if you can build sustainable cities, cities where you have really good... Um, transportation networks, but then also including green space within the city, so you're not just removing the green space altogether, then yeah, definitely. And also I think um, uh, sort of cities within cities, or, or which you can see in, in Sydney that they're, they're trying to do actually to build sort of more little CBDs within the city to cut down on travel as well. So then you're cutting down on transportation and that's going to re- be reducing our energy usage and, and our greenhouse gas emissions. Thanks. Yep. Mm. So the Centre of Excellence's focus is based on the quantitative study of climate systems um, yep. to enable modelling um, of the climate systems and cover the physics, dynamics and biology of these systems and the flow of energy, water and chemicals between them. How do you achieve uh, this modelling? So for urban areas, we uh, represent the, the urban area within a regional climate model. So it's very difficult to represent cities within a global climate model, though people are are trying, but global climate models tend to, um, the calculations are done at a very very large resolution just due to computational power issues. Uh, So when we want to represent cities, we use a regional climate model, so we nest it within a global model, and and that allows us to represent the city um, down to one kilometre, sometimes less as well, so that we can then um, change the land surface within the, the model to represent more of what sort of an urban surface would look like. So we, you know, we change the, the, the surface characteristics, the roughness length, so the, the, the um, impact of the tall buildings and such within the city. And then we can run experiments then to see how the, having a city can affect the climate and how, I guess, the climate can then affect the city as well. And once these models are developed, who who is using them? Have you got government agencies uh, using them for recommendation or anything like that? Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. So we um, we're using a variety of different models here. So at the moment we have. Um, so we're how do I explain? So there's um, one example maybe that the New South Wales government has been working with colleagues within our centre for the NACLIM experiment, which is a uh, downscaled uh, climate prediction for over the New South Wales area, and they're using a uh, what's known as a regional climate model called WARF, a weather research forecasting model, which comes out of the US, but it's openly available and. and is 
commonly used and there's been some colleagues here that have run uh, simulations over the Sydney area with including the, the urbanisation effects and, and also looking at how urbanisation effects in the future may change the climate. And so that, that's been used by the state government here in New South Wales. Um, and I think that that's becoming more common as well, where uh, government agencies are particularly interested in, in the capabilities of these models and particularly how we can simulate uh, ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change and also the urban heat island. So you can run experiments where you can um, change characteristics within the city. So you can add more trees, add more green space, or you can do things like paint all the, the roofs white so that you're increasing the reflectivity of the rooftops and, and reducing the amount of uh, heat that's absorbed by the city. So, Melissa, has the Centre of Excellence been successful in creating what you would consider as positive, sustainable urban planning from these models? Um, we have been, uh, I would say, yeah, I mean, we've had uh, quite a few studies come out of the urban work within the centre that have shown, so um, some that have shown, uh, I guess, what the impacts of different um, uh different urbanisation characteristics, like different ways to to grow the city and such may be. So some that have looked at just uh, projected growth within the Sydney area and how that may affect. Um, some research that, as I said, has looked at um, painting the roof white, some that have put green roofs, so vegetation on rooftops and seen how that may impact. And then others, there's another one that looked at actually what... Um, the impact on the urban climate would be if you replaced all of the rooftops with solar panels. So obviously if you're replacing the rooftops with solar panels, you're also um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but looking at, at how that may also influence the climate as well because you're changing, again, the reflectivity of the surface of the rooftop um, from the traditional kind of tile roofs that we tend to have in Australia. And I suppose um, the other things are things like green roofs and walls... Um, gardens, shading, parklands, yeah, those, those sort of things as well come into play? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, very important, very important. So we have, um, yeah, we've got, got quite a few people working in this space. Um, what's really nice is a lot of it's being led by our PhD students. So uh, we have some people also working on Melbourne and, and looking at um, uh, sort of uh, the impact of heat waves, so a heat wave event on Melbourne and, and then how you may mitigate the, the thermal comfort, sort of comfort levels of that heat wave, um, again, through mitigation, so changing uh, of the materials within the city or vegetation, things like that. Uh, Melissa, you spent quite a while in both um, Portland and Hong Kong, and, and I don't know if there are other areas as well. Um, I did. Yeah, how, how has that um, research um, influenced your findings um, is one solution the same for a city there as for, as for here, or how does it differ? Very different. So um, that that I think has been um, one of the bonuses of my travelling with my career is just that I've I've lived in in just completely different cities and uh, completely different climates, and I've done work on those cities. So I started uh, in the urban climate field actually when I was in Portland and I was looking at, at Portland, Oregon and a little bit of Houston, Texas as well. So very, very different cities and, and different climates. And, and in Portland, we actually did an observational study, which was quite fun, where we put uh, temperature sensors on vehicles 
and then we drove them through the cities at city at different types of day. And that mm-hmm. gave us the spatial variability in the temperature across the city and oh. that varied greatly, greatly. Yeah. And we could see there that you had significant temperature differences between the residential areas, the industrial areas and the parklands. And for Portland, we found that the most successful way to cool down the city was simply trees, so mm-hmm. canopy cover was mm. so important for Portland. Whereas when I went to Hong Kong, where you have these um, incredibly dense city with tall high-rises and... Stuff, There's no room for trees. Mm-hmm. No, it, there wasn't. And you also... Um, the benefits of trees wouldn't wouldn't be as obvious there because you, you've already got quite a lot of shading from the, during the daytime from the buildings. The buildings which, themselves. Which, yeah, yeah, which is great. But also the buildings, so when they do release energy at night, um, they're... they're the, the sort of really tall street canyons, we call them, would trap a lot of that heat so that the city stays quite warm at night. And in Hong Kong, we found out also that a lot of um, the heat within the city was due to what we call anthropogenic heat emissions. So this is emissions due to human activities in the city. So um, emissions from heat emissions from buildings due to space heating and cooling, heat emissions from vehicles, which you feel when you walk along the street and a bus drives past and mm. you can feel the heat, um, and just mm. heat emissions from people. Mm. It's a very dense city with um, lots and lots of people, and you feel that you know when you're in a crowd at a concert or something. And so that was quite significant in, in Hong Kong, um, those anthropogenic emissions, which are um, you, st- you get in cities like Melbourne and Sydney as well, but to nowhere near the extent that you would in a city like Hong Kong. So the actual cumulative heat emission from people is is a factor. Um, what what do we radiate? hundred watts or something? We're at about at a fitting rate. Um, we're about seventy five. Actually, they always this frustrates me when they talk about women in STEM at some point. <laughs> but they they always just give me the value for a man. But, anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, sort of a typical man will radiate about seventy five watts per square meter sitting. But then obviously, if you're up and walking and moving, then it gets over over one hundred. So, um, yeah, a calculated averaged across the city, like um, Sydney or Melbourne, it would would be quite small. But in a city like Hong Kong or a really dense city um, like uh, Mombuai, I've I've seen some values that are quite high. Okay, thanks. So for those of you that have just joined us, you're listening to the BZE Climate Solutions Show, and we're talking to Melissa Hart about urban climate issues. Um, Melissa... Uh, what when assessing um, the different uh, climate issues in cities and suggesting different solutions? Um, how is uh, factors like air quality um, brought into the modelling? Um, actually, it's interesting that when we look at um, climate in cities and, and urban heat island, uh, there's actually very few studies that look at both air quality and urban heat island. So there have been some. But knowing near enough, I think that this is an untouched area. But um, it, it's particularly important because some of the air pollutants that can affect our health are temperature dependent. So ground level ozone is a secondary pollutant that um, is sort of a complex photochemical uh, reaction between um, some emissions of, of Nitric, nitrous oxides and such from vehicles and volatile organic carbonates from um, other sources and sources from, from vegetation and such. And it requires sunlight and heat to form this ground level ozone, which is different, um, sort of different 
uh, purpose than than the stratospheric ozone we think of with the ozone layer. But this is ozone down at the ground level and it actually has quite significant health impacts and it's temperature dependent. So in a, a city like Sydney or Melbourne, it tends to be much higher during the summer months. And so there have been some work that's looked at, um, you know, by increasing the heat in the city due to how we build our city can impact the air quality. But um, not, not a lot. I think there's a lot more that can be done there. Also within cities, um, you're, you're changing the airflow um, due to the buildings and such. So this can also impact um, how the pollutants that are emitted from vehicles and such are dispersed. Uh, so that, that can also have a negative impact as well. So the, the air quality is one health impact, but um, there's more than that, isn't there? What, how are your health impacts considered in your studies? And in particular, just harking back to a moment ago, you mentioned about um, the buildings not cooling as much at night. And I think somewhere in your research you said that the essence of the heat island effect is more that you don't cool down as much at night, more than how hot you get during the day, and that doesn't give people respite. Is that correct? That's true. So the urban heat island effect tends to be um, at its strongest during the night and that's because uh, particularly on a, a clear night uh, with, with very little cloud cover and this means that the, the rural areas are actually cooling down much faster. So when we quantify the urban heat island effect, it's just the temperature difference between somewhere within a city and the non-urbanised surrounds. So on a, a clear, calm night, um, you have the, the rural areas cooling down much faster, whereas the heat is trapped usually due to the, you know, the, the building materials and the, the tall buildings within cities. And the cities can um, be much, much warmer at night time. And this has health impacts uh, because um, there's been quite, quite a lot of work actually looking at the health impacts of heat events within cities. And they find that it is, um, when you have consecutive days of heat, so when you have a heat wave, and particularly when you have uh, really high overnight temperatures, so high minimum temperatures, because the body does not have an opportunity to sort of recover from from that heat. And that's where we're going with our new centre of excellence, the one that started this week, in that we're now going to have more of a concentration on extreme climate events. So on things like heat waves, and we have an entire research program around heat waves, and we'll be doing quite a lot of work on heat waves in cities. So it'd be really interesting to see what comes of that. And, and there's an important clarification there, isn't there, that the, the heat island effect you're talking about is independent of climate change, but now you look at the amplifying effect of, of climate change when you put the heat island effect on top of that, and it will be much worse. Yeah, well, there, again, there's, there's, yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done with this, and there hasn't been much done, but there's been some work that have looked and sort of and, and said that perhaps rural areas will warm more under climate change in the future, but but also you will have some uh, so that heat that heat island magnitude might not be as strong, but regardless, you're still going to have warmer conditions in the city due to climate change, just due to global climate change, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. And if we're also modifying the climate in the city because of the way that mm. we urbanise the city, then, yeah, that's just what I often call... Like and a, you get one yeah, plus one equals three. Double, <laughs> yeah, that mm. double whammy of effects for those of us that live in cities, which is the majority of us. Mm. Uh, Melissa, you recently published an article regarding an interface conduction scheme in an urban land surface model. Can you tell us what your findings were with that? 
Yeah, so that was uh, a study led by one of my PhD students, Matthew Lipton. So Matthew, uh, he's been working with uh, the CSIRO, so a researcher at the CSIRO, Marcus Thatcher and myself. And Marcus Thatcher developed an urban climate model for um, for use within Australia, particularly in Australia. And then Matt's been working actually at developing this model, so actually getting um, we get down and dirty within the code, uh, the Fortran code. We still use Fortran. And, um, <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> That's where I started. And, <laughs> yeah, and looking at, at how the heat is conducted through... Um, through building uh, surfaces, and so he's come up with, with uh, I guess, uh, a new way of um, uh, of representing this conduction of material uh, of heat through through building materials that uh, is, uh, I guess, a little bit more realistic and can be implemented into these urban climate models. Okay, so you haven't applied any of those results yet. It's you've just identified that there's a, a bit of a difference in discrepancy yep, and he's, in that. He's currently working on um, applying them. Yeah, yeah, so work in progress. Just going back to your time in Hong Kong, um, you published an article on the climate change and thermal comfort in Hong Kong um, in 2012, which you predicted thermal comfort changes um, given the effect of climate change using the Universal Thermal Comfort Index. Can you tell us about your findings um, for Hong Kong um, further than you explained before? Yeah, so this was uh, using what we call a thermal comfort index. So it, it's realising that uh, the human body doesn't respond just to temperature alone. So this is quite a complex index that includes um, can, things like uh, uh, humidity, so atmospheric moisture and, and wind speed and also the metabolic process as well. So we used um, a, a model to be able to calculate this thermal comfort index for Hong Kong and then looked at temperature projections for Hong Kong and saw how thermal comfort may change within the future and and found, I mean, if, if you've been to Hong Kong, you realise that it, it can be quite uncomfortable just, just normally. It's, you know, it's a subtropical city and for eight or nine months of the year, it's very, very humid, very, very warm. And so it is quite uncomfortable. And, uh, yeah, we found that under a warming climate, under climate change, these conditions are going to become more common and getting up into to really uncomfortable um, conditions, um, those conditions that became, become quite dangerous. Um, so the thermal comfort index would be applied in your model generally, wouldn't it, in all cities, I would imagine? Um, well, it can be, yes. Uh, often, though, people do just look at temperature alone or they might... There's quite a lot of um, different indices that you can use. So, yeah, but often people may just look at temperature alone or sometimes they combine an index that looks at temperature and humidity or this, um, the universal thermal um, comfort index is a lot more complex. So it takes that. into account uh, an obvious one is humidity. I, I think I read in one of your papers yeah. that Japan, for example, will spray pavements um, <laughs> when there's a heat wave coming, but that, that will be maybe counterproductive if it's a really humid area. Mm. That's true, yeah, and that is one way of, um, of, of sort of, I guess, mitigating against heat during heat waves in some cities. Mm-hmm. So in, in a drier city, then, yeah, it, it could be a, a very successful way of doing that. And there's been there's some work out of, um, out of Melbourne from uh, people at Monash University who are suggesting that perhaps it, it could be a way of cooling down Melbourne during the heat waves because in Melbourne heat waves, it tends to be very hot and dry. Mm. Okay. You know, it's, those bushfire weather type heat waves. 
Less so now. There seems to be a lot more humid weather coming from the north mm. nowadays. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Right. Just in the last couple of minutes that we have, I just wanted to talk about um, you be recently being accepted into the Global Women in STEM Leadership Initiative um, called Homeward Bound. What's the Homeward Bound program? So Homeward Bound is a yeah a global program uh, for women in STEM that actually uh, came out of Australia and it's um, it's try the aim of the the program is to build and support a network of one thousand women globally over the next ten years, focusing on leadership and the strategy required to contribute to a more sustainable future. So I was incredibly lucky to be accepted into the second year of the Homeward Bound program. So this year there's 80 of us from 13 countries. And the program involves about 12 months of leadership, strategy and communication training and culminates in a three-week voyage to Antarctica next February. Wonderful. Incredibly excited about. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to meet a whole lot of... um Ice that's broken off the making <laughs> <Yeah>. floating about. <laughs> and we will. Yeah. And will you be and then congratulations too. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Will you be conducting research during this program or it's more focused on leadership training? It's a it's a leadership voyage rather than a science mm-hmm. voyage. So we will be we'll be doing lots of landings on the continent and learning at, uh, there is a science part of the program as well, so learning sort of about the fragility and the, of Antarctica and the role of Antarctica and the Southern Ocean within the climate system. But we'll be majority of the time will be on leadership training um, on the ship. So on board, we'll be doing training uh, whilst in, in between looking at icebergs and penguins. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful! It um, sounds like the ultimate conference gig, doesn't it? Melissa, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've run out of time. Could you tell our listeners about? Anywhere they can find further information on your models? Definitely. So we have, as I said, we have uh, a new centre that started just this week and we have a a place on our website. We'll have a a more up-to-date one soon, but that is www.climateextremes.org.au. So that's www.climateextremes.org.au? Yes. .org.au? And our current centre, which has a wealth of information from all of the research that we've been doing over the last six years for all facets of the climate system, is www.climatescience.org.au. That's www.climatescience.org.au. That's correct. Yep. Wonderful. And just for any young women or women that might be interested in getting involved in the STEM program, do you have anything to to say to them about your experience? Yes. So so look at homewardboundproject.com.au and and learn about the the program. There's a lot of information there. But also um, the whole STEM discipline, there's just... Yeah, it's it's so much fun. There's so much to be discovered. And we need more women in STEM. We need more women leadership in the STEM discipline. And I'm hoping that we're on our way to that. And just quickly, Melissa, what does STEM stand for? So S-T-E-M-M, so Science, Technology, Engineering, Maths and Medicine. So it's all the quantitative disciplines. Thank you so much. been a fascinating discussion, Melissa. Yes, thanks very much, Melissa. Thanks for having me. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening, and we hope to catch you again next week.